Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Mothering is work. It's creative. It's exhausting. It can be financially crushing. And it is immeasurably rewarding. But always, it is work. My guest today is Angela Garbus, best-selling author of Like a Mother. Her new book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change, is now available. Every parent is a working parent, whether they have a job outside of the home or not. The pandemic has laid bare what our economy is built on the backs of. And our economies all over the world are built on the backs of women's unpaid labor. To date, women have lost more than 4.6 million jobs since the beginning of this pandemic. 32% between the age of 25 and 44. They said that childcare was the reason they had to leave work. I would love to see something like paid family leave so people can have time, you know, to figure out how to function as a family unit, how to hold yourself together while also taking care of a baby. I'm Angela Garbus, and I want everyone to understand that taking care of people is the only real work humans have to do on Earth. Sorry. Not sorry. Angela, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us. And let's just jump right into it. I want to talk to you about motherhood. How do we perceive it as a nation? Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say, OMG, Alyssa Milano, thank you for having me. It's really a thrill. That's such a huge question. I think that it's very individual how we perceive motherhood, you know, and I think it's really up to us who do the mothering. And I like to emphasize mothering, the verb as opposed to motherhood, the noun, because to me, it's so much more inclusive of people who do all of this work of nurturing and caring for people and bringing them into consciousness. But really, I would say, you know, in American culture, we don't think much of motherhood. We expect a lot of it. We expect so much from women and mothers and people who care for people, and we expect them to do it for free. We expect it to be done as a labor of love. We expect mothers to be self-sacrificing caregivers. 
And we don't say all of that. It's unspoken. And that's the assumption that our culture operates from. And I think we're starting to have a reckoning with that. And it's interesting to me because when you think about mothering, let's say, I think that there are a certain amount of like values that we attach to it. What do you think those values are? Again, to this idea that motherhood and mothering is about service, sacrifice, deprioritizing yourself. I think that starts in pregnancy for people, how you're supposed to not drink coffee or have a turkey sandwich. So I really think what we do is we encourage the sublimation and the disappearance of the mother. So I think a lot of mothering is expected to be invisible, really. I guess that's not a value, but um, I think we like our mothers quiet and selfless and always doing. And I think that the barometer to which we base a good mothering person is all skewed up. It's all confused because the metrics of what we classify as a good mother, to me, means all self-sacrifice. People put so much value on, like what you said, on the woman disappearing and that there is nothing before and shall be nothing after we give birth but these children. Yeah. And I, I mean, I want to say that I actually really, I understand we, we say, you know, like, a good mom, a bad mom, or we joke like, oh, I'm a bad mom. I drank like a lot of wine or something, things like that. Or I'm just ignoring my children, letting them watch TV. I really reject that sort of moral framework of a good mom and a bad mom. To me, I think that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have. And I think we'd be better off abandoning that idea. It pains me to hear us like calling ourselves good or bad because we're doing that not based on anything that's like an internal barometer. It's a barometer that comes from the outside. We're measuring ourselves against unreal societal standards. Can you tell me about a time when you judged another mom? In Walmart, when a mother was having a child throw a tantrum in the aisle, and um, I thought, get it together, lady, you know. You have to get, get your children in check. And that happened to me on the train. And then also just the judgment right? Like the constant judgment. When I go through this all the time, well, I used to go through it all the time. I had, you know, my daughter was, she's a thumb sucker. She was a pacifier baby. And I don't pose pictures of her doing and sucking her thumb because I'm so conscious that it will be, I will be mother shamed for allowing her to still pacify herself with a sucking motion, you know? So you're self-editing constantly. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I just want to stay solidarity. I have a four-year-old thumb sucker. And I mean, when I think about it, I try to encourage her to stop, but like, I doubt she's going to be a 37-year-old thumb sucker. And I also know that this is a thing that makes her feel calm and she is prone to fly into a rage. So I feel like we should be able to encourage our children to do the things that they need to do. To self-regulate, to learn how to do that, to self-soothe. There's time to grow into a person that's well-adjusted, that doesn't do these things. Like, we have time. My take on all of this judgment that we have, and we do it to ourselves and we do it to others, is I think it fundamentally comes down to a lack of societal and structural support for women, mothers, and parents. If we all had paid leave after you bring a child into your life, whether by pregnancy, birth, or like adoption. If everyone had six months to figure out how to keep themselves and a baby alive, 
we wouldn't care as much what other people were doing. If everyone like who say you like breastfeed or pump and back in the before times when you went to an office, like if you had a safe space, quiet place to do that, you wouldn't worry about, do people think I'm not doing my job? Like, because that's a right. If we all had healthcare, we wouldn't care what other people are doing if we knew that all of us just had our basic needs taken care of. Let's talk about labor and how we view labor in our country. And why is motherhood not seen as a part of that? That's a fairly recent invention. Historically speaking, it really started in like the 1700s. And I feel like I'm always the person who's, well, it's about capitalism as like the sad trombone. (laughs) But it, it is true that for around the world for generations, we lived communally. And it wasn't the sole province of mothers to take care of families. We lived in villages. There were fathers, aunties, grandmothers, just a kindly neighbor. But when people started working for an individual wage, when we had landowners, factory owners, people went to work. And the idea was that people who went out and left the home were, quote unquote, professional workers. And they came home and were cared for by women. And mothers and women became those caregivers because female bodies reproduced. So it was just easy. Well, you had the baby, you stay home with the baby. and. What really happened is that we don't talk about this enough. The American economic system, capitalism, depends equally on domestic labor as it does on professional labor. You have to eat. You have to come home to a clean house. You have to take care of your body. There's a woman at home who's expected to do that for free. And if we had to pay women what a minimum wage, like Oxfam did this study that in the United States, it would be $11 trillion dollars. The women in the United States would be paid if they got paid minimum wage for all the unpaid domestic labor that they do. But the truth is, if you paid everyone, then corporations and employers would have less profit to be made. And so we all have been pushed under the system where we're told, like, this is just our womanly duty. This is what we do. And, and by the way, you're a bad mom and you're a bad wife if you want more and if you expect recognition and respect, God forbid, money for the work you do in the home. So, Angela, this book has a lovely focus on your Filipinx culture. And I'm just curious if this view of motherhood is a global phenomenon or is it limited to just the United States? I think overall that it is, uh, you know, this idea, I should say, the creation of mothers as the caregivers, unpaid caregivers in America, like while it's a fairly recent invention and we've really institutionalized it. There is a long global tradition of confining women to the home. In like Europe, 17th century Europe, women worked as smiths and doctors, butchers, like people had jobs. But I would say that in general, yes, servitude, unfortunately, is one of the defining characteristics of being a woman around the world. Research shows there is still inequality at home with women taking on most household responsibilities. One of the New York Times' most shared articles this week is called What Good Dads Get Away With. We like that title. It impacts why women still handle most of the child care and chores. One study estimates it will be, listen to this, another 75 years before men do half the unpaid work at home. 
people want to control women. But one thing that I thought about in writing this book, and as you said, drawing from my own Filipinx culture, is that whenever I would go home to the Philippines, my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. They came here in 1970. Whenever I would go back, there were maids everywhere. There were maids and there were what we called yayas, who are the people who are nannies, essentially. And my dad's family does not have a lot of money, but they had several maids, people to cook breakfast and to clean. And all of my cousins had these yayas who were taking care of their children. And it made me really uncomfortable as a kid because my mom used to actually say to us, I'm not your maid, right? When we were home in the United States and then we go home and then there are these maids. And I could see that my mom really struggled with it. And I don't want to judge like these ideas of this is present in lots of different cultures, a working class, a serving class. I don't like the potential for abuse that's there, but it has always struck me as a more honest way to live. Having someone helping in the home, like it's a job that takes more than one person. Ask any mother or parent, you cannot do it all. You need help. And so there was something really beautiful to me about seeing that. And I have a cousin who every year on Mother's Day, she posts the picture of her yaya saying, I could not raise my children without you. And I, I don't know anyone personally. I'm sure there are women out there, but I don't know anyone personally in the United States who would do that. Do you see pictures of people's nannies? Do you see pictures of people's live-in au pairs or that kind of thing? No, I no. And if anything, I think we are shamed if we have help too. I think it is, it's almost frowned upon. It's the people who are holding everything together in a family and getting zero recognition for their labor. And I want to talk a little bit about what happened to mothers during COVID because I was very sick and really depended on my kids, Yaya, to help, to help get past that. But then once we went into lockdown, my beautiful Celeste, she had five kids of her own and she had no one to take care of her kids and school was out. She couldn't stay with us. And we went two years without having help. And it was so hard. And I know that sounds like such a like privileged because I know that there's people that don't have any help that are working four jobs to try to get food on the table and they never see their kids. But it really took a toll on on me. And we I'm very joyful in that. And I've been very joyful in the last three weeks. She's come in like three days a week just to help me. I'm so grateful that she is back in my kids' lives because a lot of this is about stability for the child, too. And that I don't think gets talked about enough. Like if you have two working parents that work anywhere from 12 to 16 hour days, and it does go back to, I think, this bigger picture of what we value as far as work. It seems like people who work 16-hour days are valued more. You, you hear, oh, they're such a hard worker. Oh, they're a workhorse. And there's no balance at all, really. Oh, there's so much there. There's so much. Thank you for sharing that. And again, I really appreciate you talking about, let's, to name Celeste and say, like, our family, we had a really hard time without her. Privileged or not, it's hard. Taking care of kids and taking care of yourself and taking care of your home is really hard work. We need to name that and honor it and really own that because we have this idea that the nuclear family, a mom and a dad, and what is the 2.4 kids, somehow that's supposed to be enough. And it's not, especially when we're all expected to be working so much. Two adults 
are not enough. That's why like teachers are really important. Babysitters are really important. Neighbors are important. Coaches, loving adults, right? <laughs> loving older people like community and a village to be a little corny, but that's a lot of what was taken away from us in COVID. So I really think that's, yes, we need to say that and understand that there's nothing wrong with being vulnerable. There's nothing wrong with needing help. There's nothing wrong with needing more people. And also asking the question, why do we all feel that we need to work 12 to 16 hours a day? When so many people, as you rightly pointed out, so many people are working four jobs and they're barely making ends meet. We're hearing now about the great resignation for people who don't want to go back to work. There were days where I felt like there was not enough time in the day for me to meet the needs of my children and my own needs and my professional needs. It's taking a toll on my marriage. It's taking a toll on my relationship with both of my daughters. More than 2 million American women have left the workforce since the start of the pandemic. And in the corporate world alone, more than one in four women is contemplating downshifting or leaving the workforce entirely. And we're hearing it framed as like, oh, it's a labor shortage when it's not. It's a living wage shortage. I think people are thinking if it's going to be hard and I'm going to be struggling and physically exhausted, I'd almost rather be home making ends meet and piecing it together and being with my family and finding a way to have some sort of peace and rest than nonstop going from job to job for what? For the same thing. Are there any countries that are doing this right? I don't want to idolize other countries, but let's, we should say a lot of Europe, such as the Netherlands, England, oh, Canada nearby. The United States is the only country, a developed country, economically advanced country that doesn't have any guaranteed paid leave, which we should talk about as being really shameful. I don't think other countries have everything figured out, but in a lot of countries in Europe, you'll get 80% of your salary, a job to come back to. And you get that for like, or 60% of your salary. And, and that's mothers and fathers. And you get that not just for having kids, but to take care of elderly people in your family. Other countries value care more. Yes. I don't know that everyone has it all figured out, but the United States not only doesn't have it figured out, they're not even, we're not even trying. Our institutions don't have care built into the, the heart of them. I think they're really built more on like exploitation. I was looking up right now because I remember there was someone in France, I think, they basically appoint you a doula for the first three months of a child's life who comes to the house and does whatever you need that person to do. It's paid for by the government. They help with cooking. They help with doing the laundry. They will take the baby for a walk so you can rest for a second. Yes. So you can be a person. France also pays for pelvic floor physical therapy for women because a lot of people go through childbirth and then they can never quite pee the same. But France pays for people to go to a doctor because they believe that women and female reproductive health is beneficial to the long term and overall health of a society. Can you imagine? In your book, In Essential Labor, you write, raising children should not be as lonely, bankrupting and exhausting as it is. While we must demand recognition for our care work, we can't wait around for governmental support. Our needs are urgent. So I guess the question would be, what should we be doing right now? And if we're not waiting for legislation to be passed to help this, what else can we do? I don't want to in any way seem like I'm letting the government off the hook 
because our government is failing us in this way. And so there are people who are doing work lobbying and I bless them and thank you for their continued work. But as far as what we should be doing, Alyssa, I think we're already doing it in many ways. I think that human beings want to take care of each other. And the things that we saw in the pandemic were things like pods. Some parents are taking things into their own hands, forming what are known as pandemic pods. They're a version of homeschooling for small groups of children, sometimes led by teachers or tutors. But as more companies pop up to organize these pods, a debate is brewing about equity. Which to me is a fundamental recognition that after three months of being alone in our homes with just our families, we were all going to lose our minds and we all wanted to die and we're at the end of our ropes. And so we formed these communities with one or two families and figured out how to make it work. People picked up other people's kids. We made dinner. We like had play dates. So that sort of thing is already, that is precisely how so many of us survive. I think about Celeste, you said that she has five children. Like she had to rely on some other people there to like watch her children while you, while she was doing her professional work, caring for yours. So I think that there's, I think this is just such an opportunity to realize we cannot go it alone. And we weren't meant to, that life feels so much better and is more fun and is like slightly ridiculous when you have people in it. And the other things that I saw like here in my own neighborhood are these groups called mutual aid groups were forming where people would donate resources. And then the people who needed things were like, don't give me money or don't give me like time. What I really need is toilet paper, you know, or what I need is groceries. And then we saw things like community fridges, little free libraries are all over my neighborhood now. And again, this is what people do. And I think we just need to be more intentional about that spend a little extra time, like finding what are the needs of people in our community. And I know we are all busy, right? So it can be very overwhelming to think about how you start doing those things. And for some people, like giving money is like writing a check is the best way for them to participate. But I think there's also things like picking up some groceries for someone when you're going to the store. There's also when you're waiting in like school or preschool pickup line, just talking to someone just asking someone how they're doing, you know, and just learning about people in your neighborhood and what they might need because they're probably not different from you. And we're all struggling a little bit. And I think we need to see ourselves as being in solidarity with each other, as opposed to just being locked down in our homes with all of our individual miseries and responsibilities. All of this is so vital. And there is no greater joy than sharing and experiencing life with your community. I want to say one other thing about this idea of community and how in the most dire circumstances we come together in a way that seems like it is innately in us. And I think as I'm watching this tragedy unfold in Ukraine and seeing how people are living underground in these bomb shelters and creating these communities where they are taking care of each other to the best of their capability. It is the one part, like Fred Rogers says, look for the helpers. Yeah, It is the one part of this that feels hopeful, is that we as human beings have this innate ability to form communities and to take care of each other. And unfortunately, because everybody's working so fucking hard, it's hard to gather the subtitle of your book is Mothering as Social Change. And I've seen you say that motherhood radicalized you. Uh, how so? I totally own up to having democratic, progressive, leftist policies and political leanings. But I would say that it 
physically radicalized me. Like after I was pregnant and gave birth to my older daughter, I didn't understand that the state of maternity care in the United States is severely lacking, that Black women are four times as likely to die in childbirth than white women and Latina women and Asian women generally have lower health outcomes. And so I just thought, oh my God, like we don't, we don't take care of mothers to kind of go back to our original question. And I was like, this is wrong. You depend on us for the continuation of our species and you can't guarantee us basic care. That was a big part of it that really opened my eyes. And then figuring out childcare and realizing that in the United States, until a child is six years old, you are fully on your own to figure out how you're going to take care of that child. So things like that. And then also the fact that, you know, as a woman of color, as the child of immigrants here in America, I've had a sense for most of my life that like, I'm not normal, that the world wasn't meant for me, that I don't fit in. And I've had to do a lot of work to like really value and love myself. Because my parents are immigrants and because of a language barrier, I didn't feel like I was able to be a kid or take part in what a typical childhood looks like or feels like. I took on a lot of responsibilities. Some of them were put on me and then others, I just felt like I needed to help. You know, they're your parents. I think maybe the deepest radicalization that happened is that I was like, I want better for my children. I want my daughters from the very beginning of their life, these Filipina girls, to know that they are enough, to know that they are in charge of their bodies and no one can tell them what to do with it. And I just want all of these things that I had to unlearn or that I came too late. I want them to have that from the beginning of their life. And that is how motherhood radicalized me. I think that's really beautiful. My kids had this sort of March Madness basketball tournament in school. and. All the teams were co-ed. And I looked at my dad and I said, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't anything. I looked at my dad and I was like, this is the generation of girls that are growing up where it isn't a thing to play with the boys, where it's just what it is that I think is going to change the world. They're going to be unstoppable because no one is telling them they can't or they can, but they have to do it over here or with this group. So I think it's so interesting and it's going to be so fascinating to see what evolves out of this generation of women. And I think one of the things I love about your book and one of the most interesting things about your book is that it's almost part manifesto and then part parenting guide. And you rarely see a vision for social change connected to the practicalities of raising children. What made you see it that way or what made you take this approach for the book? I want to say right away, I love that framing of it. Part of me gets uncomfortable because I'm like, I did not write a parenting guide. Like, I'm very anti-advice. I don't like telling people what to do. And I hate people telling me what to do. But there are, but I know that there, it is prescriptive in these certain ways that, um, honestly, part of why I did it this way is because how do we live our values, right? Like, how do I make this better world that I, I want my children to live in a better world than the one that I currently occupy? How do I do that? Well, I think of them as they're the people who are going to be adults. And so I need to pass down like my values onto them. I need to be very explicit and clear that in our family, we think everyone, no matter what their skin color is, no matter how many limbs they have, 
everyone is worthy and everyone is important and no one is better than anyone else. I hear a lot about how people think, oh, it's too early to talk to kids about race or it's too early to talk to kids about like disability. It's confusing, things like that. And I guess, yeah, if I am wanting to be a guide to say, no, you're fortunate and privileged enough to have gone through part of parenting thinking that it's okay to wait to talk about those things. But what a lot of people from marginalized communities understand is that it's never too early. Before you even conceive a child, you're thinking, how am I going to talk to them about how to avoid being killed by the police? Things like that. And so I just wanted to also, like, the other part of this is I wrote a book that I needed. I'm very clear. Like, I don't, Alyssa, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm making it up. Fully improvising as we go along. Fully improvising as my children ask me things like, what does it mean to be trans, right? Or like, they have questions and I'm just like, I'm just going to be here and talking to them about it. And I think it's really important for us to remember, like, we're not experts. Like, we can learn. And it's okay to show kids that we're learning. But we're expected to be experts. And by the way, I'll say to my kids all the time, apologize if I if I was short-tempered. And I'll say to my son, because he's the oldest, you're teaching me how to be a parent because I've never done it before. And there's a lot of things that I've done before that I'm really polished and good at. But this is messy for me. And he'll be like, I know, mom. And it feels like such a relief to say that out loud. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna fuck up sometimes. It doesn't mean that I'm fucking you up. And if I am fucking you up, I'm, I'm going to help you find the tools. Yeah, I will help you and support you in therapy later in life. I think it's so important what you're saying is, it's another way of saying to me, we are in a relationship. And it's not a relationship where I, like, yes, I make rules, but I don't, like, actually have power over you in this way that's like dominant. And I love my parents. My parents gave me unconditional love, but like they, a lot of times were just like trying to survive and also being like, what is the deal with America? This is nothing like how we were raised. So there's a lot of things that we just didn't talk about. Sex was not a thing we ever talked about because they were like, you will give your virginity a beautiful flower to one man when you get married. And that was it. But I have like actual questions that never went addressed. And I don't want my kids to be in their 20s when they're figuring out how their bodies work. I never heard a lot of my parents being like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I messed up. They made mistakes because they're people and they're humans. And I think we need to own that sort of aspect of ourselves better in parenting. And one final thing I'll say about why I sort of wrote it as manifesto slash parenting guide is that in the pandemic, when for six months, I was like, I'm not a writer anymore. I'm not even Angela. I'm just somebody's mother. I'm just somebody's spouse. Like all I do is take care of people. All I am is a caregiver. I was depressed and I had to sort of these things that I used to like to do, read to my kids and cook. I missed enjoying them. And part of writing this book is celebrating the little things that we do every day Yes, they are drudgery. <laughs> yes, they are things to scratch off a to-do list, but they really are like, nothing is too small. The things that we teach our children and the things that we show them, like they really mean a lot. Our children pay attention to the things that we say and the things that we do. And at the smallest, most granular level, we are making a better society. We are passing these values down onto children. And 
That's not me blowing smoke other people's asses. Like, I really believe that to be true. Every single one of us here today knows something about families. Every single one of us is someone's child, therefore has experienced parenting. Some of us are parents and have our own children. I have four. There is nothing, even if all you do today is keep your children alive and love them, that's a great day. You did a lot. You were talking about the little things. You write about mothering as creative labor, which I love so much. Tell us a little bit about that. What is creative labor to you? There's a creativity to, there's so many things like improvising, right? Or when you're somewhere and someone has a poop blowout, whether it's a diaper or in a pair of underwear and you don't have anything, you know, like it's creative to figure out how to utilize fast food napkin and a leaf and a stick to, um, to get people on their way. Right. But it is also, um, you know, I think I use this example in the book, like my daughter was just starting to read when I was working on it. And so she would read like everything. She'd be like, this jar is peanut butter. And she asked me like, what's a GMO one day? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You'd read it on a thing. And I was like, how do I answer this question? And I felt like I got to be creative. And I was like, things grow. Do you think they need things added to them to grow? I mean, I don't even remember what my answer was, but like every day you are like making stuff up on the fly. And I am not someone who personally likes to do deep imaginative play with my children. Like my husband is more fun in that sense. But like when I play with them, I'm creative. I create stories for them. They always want me to make up a story about a bear and a bunny rabbit. So there's that stuff. And then there's also just the fact that when you are pregnant and give birth or when you are part of raising a baby into a person, you are literally creating a life. It is generative and you are making something and molding something and influencing something. And you are in some ways like making your legacy but more importantly, you are helping form a person who hopefully will be a force of good and love and light in this world. And that is creative. And that is important. What happens to us when mothers are erased? What's American society like now? We don't have paid leave. We have a record high number of women in Congress, and that's 27%. And so it means that we don't have, yeah, we don't have paid leave. We don't have a universal pre-K we don't have a society that values mother. Like, and so the pandemic just threatens to disappear us even further. But people are trying to say that we don't even have the right to decide whether or not we want to be mothers, whether or not we have, this is a whole other can of worms, but let's talk about it. Women don't have full body autonomy in this country. And it's a fucking shame. And those states, I live in a state where abortion happens to still be legal, but like it is not that case and has not been that case for a very long time. And when we don't even have our bodies, we have very limited power in this society. And that is precisely like we have been disappearing. They have been trying to disappear us for years. And what we get is a mess of a country that we have right now and an inhumane way of living. My biggest, my tombstone issue is the Equal Rights Amendment and trying to get women in our constitution, which people are shocked to know that we don't, that women don't have equal protection under the law. We were purposely excluded and have been fighting for constitutional equality for 100 years. So tell us about this idea of embodied mothering. To go back to what I was saying about being a young person of color growing up in America, I think it's not unique to me, but young girls get a message. Like not just young women, like young boys get a message too about how they're supposed to be strong and dominant and decisive. And young women are supposed to be small and to be 
pleasant. These are obviously gross stereotypes, but this is a general way of the world. And like, I kind of felt like my body was not small, (laughs) was never particularly small. And I feel like a lot of people, like the white supremacy and the racism that's part of American culture, like really manifests itself in bodies, in violence against these bodies. You know, you think about people who were enslaved, they were not entitled to their bodies, or as we were talking about reproductive freedom, we are not allowed full control over our bodies. And so to me, part of embodied mothering is accepting, no, I am a body and I am not better off without my body. I am a body that is allowed to feel pleasure. I am a body that has appetites. I am a body that has birthed other bodies and takes care of other bodies. Which, can we just talk about the birthing other bodies thing? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yes. Like how we are not just completely worshipped for that fact that we don't even have an instruction manual and we grow humans. Yes. And then we can also feed them. And then the food changes, our body changes the food based on what that new human needs to stay healthy. No, what female bodies do is nothing short of fucking miraculous. And I agree. I am here for it. I'm never going to shut up about it. Thank you for hitting pause on that. It is incredible. And yet so many of us are made to feel and made to be ashamed of our bodies. It's too big. It's too unruly. It's too gassy. It's too leaky. My hair is gray. Um, I'm getting wrinkles. My boobs are sagging. But we don't focus on, hey, my body does a really good job of keeping me alive every day. Like my body makes it possible for me to think things and be happy. We don't celebrate our bodies enough. And I know this sounds very like basic and kumbaya, but as a society, we are so disembodied. We're supposed to sit at school or in our office in a chair for eight to 12 hours a day. And then if we want to move our bodies, we're supposed to like go ride a Peloton or take an efficiency class. We're not really encouraged to like wander. We like layer our pleasurable movement with fitness and efficiency, which is like the language of work. And so what I want is for people to enjoy being in their bodies. And, you know, if you can't love your body, just to accept your body and be like, it's fine. I'm a human with a body. Nobody's body is perfect. And I think when you, when we as parents can do that and accept ourselves, which is easier said than done. And I'm the first person to admit that. But when we do that, our children see that our children know that, and they can be embodied children who are like, yes, I have the right to my body and I can do with my body what I choose. And my body is. I won't make my body small. I want to be in my body like crashing into that screen door. That's what I need to do or whatever kids need to do. (laughs) And finally, what gives you hope? Oh, I mean, here I am. I'm talking to Alyssa Milano about my book and mothering and social change. And it gives me hope that people want to be having these conversations. That what you said earlier is going to stick with me about how it is like we innately know how to make and create community. And that gives me hope. It's what's given me hope through the pandemic. I think that we are a very divided country, but there are more people than not who want to help each other and who want to take care of each other. And I see that every day and I feel the pain of the world and I tune out sometimes all that shit that brings me down because I need to focus on what brings me hope and what brings me joy, which is how I can show up for myself and other people. Well, Angela, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
when Angela shows up at the office, know that Angela's been up for at least three hours, had her hand covered in human excrement, unwedged a small person who has become lodged in between the washing machine and the wall, gotten down on her hands and knees and picked up oatmeal off the carpet. Domestic labor, which is what parenting is and everything that goes along with parenting. It's not just taking care of a child, you know, it's keeping a household running, it's washing dishes, it's doing laundry, it's keeping the schedule tight, you know. We, again, assume that that work will be done by a wife who's at home. The reality is very, is, has progressed beyond where we're at policy-wise. We have a terrible reality in America. We undervalue labor, especially creative labor. And that is so much more true for the creative labor of women, and again, even more so for women of color. We demand caregiving. We expect it. We even put mothers on a pedestal as paragons of virtue and love and support. But we do not value the labor mothers do. During the pandemic, nearly all of the job losses in America were jobs held by women. Think about that. And the cost to us as a nation, as a people, and as individuals may be impossible to tally. Raising children, caring for our children, this is essential work. The labor women do in our nation is essential. It has value beyond the metaphorical. We have to start paying mothers to raise children. And we need to elect lawmakers who will make that happen. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.